0: Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theatre of Public Policy podcast, which presents the interviews from our live shows in Minneapolis. Our guest today is Maya Rao, a reporter for the Star Tribune. She spent a year covering the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota and wrote a book about it called Great American Outpost, Dreamers, Mavericks, and the Making of an Oil Frontier. Our media sponsor this season is MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can read local, state, and national news at minpost.com.
1: Thank you so much for being here. This is so exciting for us. Um, you're on like a very big book tour right now. You're all over the place. Like you were just in uh, North Dakota, correct? And I was
2: in Grand Forks.
1: You were in Grand Forks. I don't want
2: to show my face in the oil field yet.
1: No? So. Why? Why Are you worried that they're going to be like, oh, we read your book. Uh, how come I'm not in it? Um, uh, so, and now you're going to Iowa, and you were on, like, national public radio today. You're all yes. over the place. So we're very excited. I, I am hoping this is your... First at least improv comedy show appearance that you're doing as part of this book tour. You're
2: my first and only one oh, so far. Well, <laughs> you're
1: welcome. So um so let's just start. Uh let's I I, I wanna talk about your uh, particular why you did this, but let's even just rewind before that. So uh going back before even, you know, mid two thousands, uh There had been oil in the Dakotas previously. You know, Dakota oil was not a brand-new thing, but something happened in the mid-late 2000s that all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is different, this is a thing. So can you just talk us through, like, was there just a switch that happened? Was there something that they discovered something? How did that end up happening?
2: Well, uh, yes, so North Dakota has always had a lot of oil, but it, they just could not really extract it profitably. It was really difficult. Um, but advances in uh, fracking and horizontal drilling uh, helped along with $100 a barrel oil, and the discovery of the Bakken shale really all converged to make this pretty much the biggest oil boom in modern U.S. history. So can you just say,
1: uh, 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 We should probably explain fracking, because it's a thing that gets thrown around a lot, and we should say what it is, and then... I'm also, horizontal drilling, I always just think of the Mr. Burns thing where he just has like the sideways drilling thing to go, uh, is that what, I assume, am I correct that's what horizontal drilling is? you
2: go, uh, you drill two miles down and then two miles across. Easy. Yes. (laughs) No big deal in negative 40 degree winters there. Yeah. Um, And then fracking um, helps to get the... Oil out of this um, shale rock that is really um, uh, sort of looks like cement. It, it's not very, doesn't look very porous. Um, so fracking sort of explodes all of that out.
1: <laughs> and so, uh, just again, just to talk a minute about what fracking is. So it's, is it, it's blowing up, it, but it's well, water being pushed right, in there. Yeah. Or? So
2: millions of gallons of water, sand. Uh, chemicals are all pumped down there, and um, they send explosives down there as well, um, going two miles down, two miles across. Um, and oil goes back up. And then
1: oil just comes back up. Uh, yes. And everything is fine environmentally. But we'll talk about that more later. Uh, so let's let's fast forward to your part, which is, so you're working at the Star Tribune uh, at the mm-hmm. time, or you were covering uh, Minneapolis and for a while there. And, yeah and then you were just like you know what i'm going to just go out to north dakota uh why not let's just see what's going on um which i'm sure all of us have had that urge at some point yes. but uh what can you just talk us through how did you get to that point what what snapped in you maya um <laughs> um
2: no i was just really fascinated by the story it it, it was this classic American story, it made me think of the California Gold Rush, the Klondike Gold Rush. Um, it attracted all these really interesting characters. And I felt like um, it was just one of those stories that, that mainstream news reporting just was not going to really cover. It was just really nuanced um, and it it took a while to kind of get to the bottom of it. So I wanted to just be there and kind of observe along the way.
1: And so how did you do that? I mean, I, I'm sort of jokingly am saying you just decided to go there, but like yeah. that is actually kind of what you did, isn't it? That you just
2: Yeah, I just picked up one day and drove ten hours <laughs> to the west. <laughs>
1: and then you're like, This no is my deal. life now. <laughs> um, and because you went out there and this is a big part of your book and you didn't say you didn't start going around and saying like, "Hey, I'm a reporter for the Star Tribune. I'm here to write a story about this." You just embedded yourself, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, if I actually wanted to go out there and not have any pressure to answer to an editor. You know, a lot of times I'm sure that
1: that's a thing no that's common to among any, journalists. Yeah, any yes.
2: bosses listening in today? But. Um, no, because editors always want to know what the story is before you go, or they want to have some idea of what you're doing. And I just didn't want that pressure. I just wanted to kind of observe and hang out. So I went out a number of times. Um, I cashiered at a truck stop for a month, and I, that actually helped me kind of uh, immerse in a more organic way. And then I...
1: And can I just... So this uh, this is a part of your book. This is sort of the entry point in some ways yes. for North Dakota, is that you were... You just went in and you're like, you applied for a job as a cashier at a Mm -hmm. truck stop. Where was that truck stop?
2: It's called the Wild Bison Truck Stop. It's on Highway 85. It's um, halfway between Williston and Watford City. And why that
1: that truck? I mean, I've got um, to imagine there's more than one truck stop. Why that one?
2: Well, I, so it's really important for me and other, other reporters who do this, that you can't really lie on an application. You know, you got to, no. I like how you, you say, gotta,
1: it's important for me not to lie. I mean, you do whatever you want, everybody, but I try not to just openly lie, yeah.
2: No, I mean, you get a job application, and, I mean, I didn't put that I worked for the Star Tribune, but I put some of my past newspaper jobs, and... Um, did anybody
1: ask, like, so, you were, like, the editor of this paper, and you were, like, a city hall beat reporter, and now you're working at a gas station. Makes perfect sense to me. <laughs>
2: yeah, I was fired for plagiarism. <laughs> That's why I'll it yeah. up here. No, um, no, so I actually applied to a pilot truck stop, but then they were asking too many questions, so I didn't feel comfortable. But this other truck stop, they <laughs> hired me on the spot, like uh, everybody else, um, and nobody really seemed to and you're like this care. is this is my
1: home uh, <laughs> just a place that is like oh we'll just hire this person on the spot yeah. I don't need to read this application <laughs> um so you, a month there what did you learn like was it the sort of fruitful engaging experience that you were expecting like what what, yeah. what, what did you start to what did the i mean not to be your editor but what was the story um, <laughs> what's the
2: nut graph yeah exactly scene? no um It's so funny. I I got a lot of notes. I wrote a big story about it. I don't think I understood the significance for a long time after that. One of the things I I explain a little bit more in the book was that the truck stop is more than just a truck stop. It's a symbol of this really transient nature of the oil field. It's sort of this metaphor for what the residents hope their land doesn't become. You'll hear them often say, we don't want this place to turn into one massive truck stop in 20 years with you know, just people coming in, coming out. Nobody cares. It's just a, a passing through point. Um,
1: Follow-up question. Yeah. Has it turned into a massive <laughs> truck stop with people coming in, going out?
2: You know, a lot of that... Uh, it's it's calmed down. I don't know if I'd call it a truck stop. I haven't been there for for two years, but the last time I was there, I mean, you definitely saw. It felt like a dumping ground. You know, there's these uh, abandoned farmsteads that were there from generations ago. Um, and now you see these abandoned trailers, abandoned man camps, abandoned frack tanks. So it's just sort of junk everywhere. That was the last thing I remember about it.
1: So you're in uh, this truck stop, and let's talk about what's happening sort of in parallel to this. I mean, the kind of the reason that you're there. Mm -hmm. So North Dakota, as we said in our sort of opening here, small state population-wise, and all of a sudden there is this not a discovery, but, like, this sort of convergence of events, as you described it. Mm-hmm. And so what starts to happen then, I guess, from... I don't, I think the timeline is maybe, like, 2009 to 2014, somewhere in that range. Like, what's happening?
2: Right. So so there's just uh, thousands of people from all over the country, some from all over the world, come in. Um, all these trucks have bombarded the road. People, everybody... Uh, well... A lot of people there knew someone who died on the roads from these trucking accidents. Meanwhile, there's not a lot of places to live, so apartment developers are going on a really big building spree. Um, I mean, you talk about
1: towns that literally would double or even potentially triple in population in like a year or two years.
2: Yeah. Um, Actually, they, they didn't always necessarily know how many people really lived there. There were so many people in campers and trailers and squatting somewhere. Um, that there's this sense that, that public officials didn't even have a firm grasp themselves. Or sometimes they would tell me they would round the corner and be like, Why is there this illegal RV park there? You know, I didn't approve that. So in, in McKinsey County, where the truck stop was, um, that was the fastest growing rural county in America at that time, and there was no Build, no real building code or zoning when all this happened. So that was a public policy nightmare. I mean, you would just see, like, a trailer park next to a saltwater disposal next to a rig. Then the tornado would come, and trailers would go fly everywhere. I mean, it was just really... It's you talk just, about it
1: like it was just sort <laughs> of like, oh, my souffle fell, and then a tornado came <laughs> through town, and, like, dinner was late, and...
2: <laughs> um... <laughs>
1: Just, yeah, good. Uh, so, uh, so so let's talk about then your experience. So again, tens of thousands of people are coming through. Who are these people that are coming, right? I think that that's actually probably one of the most interesting parts of your story is that uh, these are, these are not, uh, very unique, interesting people who are coming to town, if that's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so who, who's coming to, to North Dakota during this time?
2: Well, you know, I would ask some of the laborers, you know, why did you come here? And they would often give me this really generic answer. I came here for a better job. And after I knew people for a really long time, they would tell me things like, actually, I'm a convicted sex offender. Or, I've got Good for a, improv
1: comedy. I've got Good. a warrant um, for
2: my arrest. I've got four DUIs. Or, you know, you'd Google them and see they were sued for securities fraud. I mean, so there were... A lot of people were running from something or had some sort of unsavory reason. And, of course, most people were, were just, you know, honest, hardworking people. But there's a substantial minority that had some sort of issue in their life. And so
1: the way that you talk about it in the book, though, is almost romantic, where it's uh, (laughs) the, it's, you know, it's sort of the, again, a gold rush or like a Deadwood type town where it's like Mm -hmm. all these people who are like, I'm going to just start a brand new life, which we kind of, I think, in the 21st century think is impossible in some ways, but because so much of your life follows you in a paper trail Mm -hmm. and all these different ways. But these people are like, no, I can go here and like make it or make something brand new out of myself.
2: Yeah, yeah, um, that's, that's definitely true. Um, that is harder to do with Google now. I thought that was one of the interesting things about this um, oil rush compared to past historical uh, rushes in the 19th century. Um, you look at some of the scandals that happened in Alaska and where people didn't know somebody was wanted for grand larceny, and now you just Google somebody, their mugshot pops up, you know, women would tell me they discovered that their boyfriend, you know, um, was actually married by going on Facebook. So the technological aspect was really <laughs> a but, new game changer. Well, this is interesting, yeah.
1: though, too, because you met a lot of people who you met in one way, and then you didn't learn until later that they had, like, a <laughs> very different, I don't know, identity? I, yes. a very dif- A very real identity, I guess you would say, somewhere else. So, like... <laughs> Uh, well, can you tell the story of you wa- you went into like a biker bar and there was actually a movie being filmed there or something? <laughs> what is this?
2: Yeah. So in North Dakota, you can walk into a bar and you never know who you're going to meet. So one day I walked into a biker bar in Williston and I saw this blonde woman who looked really familiar and I couldn't place it at first, but then I realized she was Rachel, um, Brosnahan. And the last time I'd seen her, she was, uh, that was in house of cards where she was being buried with the shovel by Doug Stamper. Do you watch House of Cards?
1: Spoiler alerts, but yes. Uh, so, <clears throat> all right. Yes. So, and she was just in Williston.
2: She's filming. She was filming some sort of movie about roughnecks. Um, did not sound like a good movie. But <laughs> um,
1: wait, can you define roughneck for me? Sure. I feel like this is a it's, term I'm going to use inappropriately and get punched in the face. So help me out.
2: It's a. It can be kind of a catch-all term. I mean, it often means someone who's working on an oil rig, um, often one of the more junior positions. As you work your way up, you become a driller or a derrick man. But, um, you know, rough roughnecks work on oil rigs. But it can also just mean it's just a kind of a general catch-all term. Like, fracking also becomes this catch-all term, too. It's it's a bit vague.
1: So, biker bar, you meet... Uh pseudo movie yes. star or at least uh, house of cards dead body star yeah. um you also you talk about you went to a dinner party where you met some folks and then found out interesting first of all can i just ask what is like a, a dinner party on like the north dakota oil rigs like what was well, served um
2: some gourmet lasagna bolognese sauce some uh, grilled Caesar salad.
1: Grilled Caesar salad? It sounds
2: terrible, but it's delicious. I
1: don't even understand how you put a salad on a grill.
2: Well, I, you put the lettuce, lettuce on the grill. With the, it's really, really good, even though it doesn't seem like it is. Um, but the host, who had a background of his own, uh, uh, I was standing there kind of reporting, and then um, this, his neighbor walked in, and she went by the nickname of Mama and she was an ex-stripper from Las Vegas. Now, in the Bakken, that's not unusual. There's a lot of people who are an ex-stripper from Las Vegas. And I asked, what do you do? And she said she sold hair extensions because there's nowhere to get your hair done around there. And I I don't wear hair extensions, but I knew what she was talking about, that, you know, that's a genuine concern for women. Um, So I went to her house, met her family. Then they came over for dinner. Very nice people. Um, A couple months later... Um, I get a call from somebody in the oil field who's like, check the paper. So I look the paper up. And by this time, this has happened to me a couple of times. I was a little nervous. Um, there her mug shot is. She's made the news in five different states. She was running a million-dollar drug trafficking ring. Wow. Her...
1: And she didn't even serve any for dinner? Like, that's <laughs> selfish. Um... You say that this happened a lot, though. So, I mean, were there other folks who you met as one thing and then learned later they were something totally different?
2: Yes. Um, You know, one guy... It was actually hard to find someone to write about sometimes because I would keep learning that there was some problem with them. (laughs) But... uh,
1: this guy actually just I've, some int- something interesting about them is the yeah, way they, that we like might, to say, it. You yeah.
2: Know, might make it hard to to hang a whole narrative around them, but there's some um, truck driver I really liked. He had a very compelling backstory. I knew him for a while, and um, you know, at some point I stopped. Uh, he stopped returning my texts, and I saw his Facebook page was deactivated. <laughs> so I looked him up. I thought there must be some horrible accident. Maybe he had a head of trucking accident. And his mugshot popped up, and he had not. Texted me back because he was in jail um, for a felony sex offense, and oh. he, had, he had no other criminal record, though. And I, you know, it was it was really, really upsetting. And um, the prosecutor dropped the charges, though. So oh. he's he's good. I but,
1: don't know how to feel about that. Um, I, I was about to say yay, and then I I'm met, like, well, maybe I'm not know. I met an, I have an no assistant.
2: Idea. I met an assistant with his defense attorney um, at at my book reading in Grand Forks. Well, can, <clears throat> it's a small that, world. That is very weird.
1: Uh, so can, uh, I, I want to ask you about a couple other things. I mean, and we should say, we're going to open this up for you all to ask questions in the second half of the show, but um, there's a component to this, which I, I, I've been thinking about how to ask this without coming off in in a sexist way, but you were a woman going into a place that was like seemingly, by perception-wise, like 80% male. And like there's a part of me that is like, that seems particularly scary. Um, I would be scared there and I probably don't maybe necessarily have, uh, you know, an entire room of like people who are like, Oh my God, a woman just walked in. Like, I'm really interested in that. <laughs> and so I don't, is that, was that like a scary thing? Was that, was that something uh, that you thought about?
2: Well, I think most of the time I was there was not maybe the height of the danger for women. Or I, it just—it didn't feel like that to me. Now, I mean, certainly, I mean, i, I think the—the the only time that people were were harassing or threatening me was generally people I already knew them for a while. It was nice. Wait,
1: what? They like were like, oh, now we know you. Now we can sexually harass you. <laughs> like that seems horrible. Uh, yeah, but no,
2: I mean, some some people have the stereotype that you'd be catcalled in the street or groped in a bar. So I never had that. But I mean, I—I I mean, I also, you know, I mean. You know, when I, often when I was out, I dressed totally differently than I did when I went to work at the Star Tribune. You know, I, you know, I, w- I would wear I You didn't wear jeans. like a business suit? And no, I did not you, wear a yeah. business suit. <laughs> well, because it's also really dirty. There's dust and dirt flying everywhere. So I would wear steel-toed boots, because you need that to get on oil sites anyway, and then jeans and a T-shirt. So, I mean, I just kind of blended in after a while. Did you <laughs> notice,
1: though, a diff- like, I mean, w- was there any, though, just element of, you know, oh, a woman, like, on the oil rig, was that unusual for you to just show mm. up there? Or was, were there, am I, is that a misperception that there actually were more women than maybe we presume?
2: Um. Again, I think it was the time period that maybe if I had come, like, really early in the boom or at the peak, maybe it would have looked different. I don't know. Yeah. But I felt like I, w- I was always treated very professionally on oil rigs and frack sites. And there are, there are actually a lot of women who work on um, oil sites doing, like, the, the mud logging, the geology work. There's women who come as salespeople. Also, salespeople come to rigs all the time. And I think, like, people who work on rigs and frack sites... Um, there's a misperception that maybe they're really wild or rough or that anybody can get those jobs. And I, for the time period I was there, those were actually the most professional people you could deal with.
1: That's interesting. So yeah. uh, I, I, just a couple more questions in the time we have left. So one is uh, in this sort of bizarre world, you know, there's all these people that are coming there. And you were there because it's a story. And eventually, there a, a lot of people were there because it's a story, and there was a yeah. lot of media there. So, what yeah. can you just describe what that was like? What was it like when this, uh, when sort of the big national media started to figure this out, this big story?
2: Yeah, well, um, a, a lot of the people, the, a lot of people who lived in the oil field, just walked around like jaded celebrities. You'd say, "Hey, I'm writing a book," and they did not care at all because they would be like, "Well." My friend at the New York Times came and did a story on me, or the National Geographic magazine was here, or Lisa Ling came here, or, you know, there was a documentary film crew here, and I was on CNBC. I mean, it became, like, the media itself became a story, so that was actually one of my favorite parts to write. I mean, at first I felt irritated, um, but then I, I thought, this is really funny, and I went, I remember going to see the sheriff in Williston to interview him, and he just, Didn't want to talk to me because that's not important enough, and he goes, "Nat Geo's in town, you know this (laughs) show." I've
1: used that excuse before. (laughs) I can't hang out. Nat Geo's in town.
2: No, um, this show, Underworld Inc. If anyone here has seen it, um, it runs the National Geographic Channel, and so they um, they like to film, you know, the the hidden, shadowy worlds of drug trafficking and sex trafficking. So they came there to do a show called Fracking Hell. And the town was not so pleased. I think the sheriff was not pleased about Nat Geo after that. Um, but they really overhyped a lot of things. They filmed a allegedly a biker gang, but I talked to one producer who heavily implied that they sort of faked that. Um, so there's an interesting window there into how television can be manipulated.
1: Uh, there's so many elements of this to talk about, and I, I do want to talk about more, but... Um Uh, because i do want to get into some of the environmental pieces and we can Mm -hmm. do that in the second half of the show but just to kind of round out the story so uh, there was this huge boom as you mentioned oil was at a hundred dollars a barrel it dropped a lot since then so did everybody just get up and leave then or Mm what what sort of happened since since that the decline in oil prices
2: well so the so I said I didn't understand the significance of my time at the truck stop, that was the month of June 2014, so that's, uh, that actually would become a very significant time period in oil history. That was the last final month of $100 a barrel oil, and the boom was still very strong for the rest of the year, even though the prices were dropping. So by 2015, I spent a lot of time out there, and it was actually a really great window into all these public policy problems and issues where... The town had gotten all this, uh, all these apartments up, all these places to live, all these restaurants, and that was just at the moment when people were losing jobs and losing incomes, and they were leaving. And then suddenly, investors and and town leaders began to be very desperate, and there was this real mismatch of timing. You know, um, people often there when they would get a job, they would get a house and uh, or the company would provide housing in addition to the job. So once they were laid off they would lose their house within 48 hours so people were homeless they were angry um a lot of people were so angry like if they were laid off from an oil site they would look for tools to steal that a lot of these tools they don't look that big or fancy but they can be worth a couple thousand dollars they'd like to steal a couple tools on their way out
1: It's okay, you don't have don't to tell
2: wanna, me. I don't want to say it in a public forum. Okay,
1: good. Uh, all right, well, and so, but now oil prices are starting to rise again, is that right? Yeah,
2: they're in the 60s now. They're they're um, rising to levels that we haven't seen since late 2014. So that is good on one level but on another hand a lot of people who were laid off and left the oil field they were so bitter about how everything worked out and they felt very mistreated and used and taken advantage of that the oil field is having a hard time getting workers to come back and to you know have a good stable workforce there
1: this is and uh just last are you going to go back then with the book tour (laughs) to the oil field are you going to try and sell the book there
2: Um, you know, I I think that everyone there sort of already knows this topic, so I'm not sure... But that's... People love
1: reading about themselves. Mm -hmm. If you want to write a book (laughs) about the improv comedy world of the Twin Cities and public policy in particular, we would buy it. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, I just planted that (laughs) seed. Please, a big round of applause. (laughs) My round. You ask a question, I'll give you a sticker, but only for three people, because I only have...
2: You said you worked in the truck stop for a month. What did you do the rest of the time you were there? Uh, well, I went back, and um, you know, I was I just reported full time. Um, I probably spent about a year there overall. And um, working at the truck stop, it was just kind of like a, a narrative framing device that I wanted to use for a story. It helped me meet the main um, subject of my book. He's a truck driver from North Carolina. Um, Yeah, all the rest of the time, I was just mostly immersing. I was um, interviewing people and observing. So did you have, uh, were you harassed because you were a woman in any of the situations you were in, like walking into a bar? Yeah, that's actually, I'm I'm sure that has happened to other women. I was never actually harassed at a bar, but... I, I actually learned something that, that really surprised me. Um, uh, there were, sometimes I would be talking to a guy who would be twice my size, really big guy, um, that I'd be interviewing. And I would tell him, like, where I've gone. And he'd say, Oh, you go to that bar? I would never go. And I said, What do you mean? You're such a big guy. So some of these big men, they would tell me that it was more dangerous for them to go to a bar because there's a lot of meatheads hyped up on testosterone, and they just want to start a bar fight and punch another guy in the face. So nobody's going to punch me in the face uh, at a bar. Why do you assume
1: that? I, I mean, no offense, but I just, I mean, why do you assume that?
2: I mean, so that area, it's really a patriarchal society. So, some, so, a lot of times when you're in these situations, yes, you can be harassed, but the flip side is that a lot of the men there, if they ever saw you being harassed in a sort of public place, they would, they would immediately stop any guy doing that, because I think there's this culture where they believe you shouldn't be harassing women like that.
1: I have another question right
2: here. I'm from North Dakota. <clears throat> Say proudly. I am from North Dakota. <laughs> And I've, I, I worked for a law firm, but
1: I'm wondering, where did you live during this
2: horrendous time in housing? Well, um, so I took a number of trips out there during the boom when there was limited housing, although most of my time there was when it had calmed down. But in some of the earlier times, like my first trip, I slept on the air mattress of a friend of a friend of a friend, <laughs> That was sort of set up. Um, another time, probably my favorite time, I had to... Uh, somebody I knew said I could stay in a colleague's trailer, a trailer park called Dakota Land. And I get to this trailer, and some tattooed roughneck opens the door from Tuscaloosa. Uh, he, was, he looked scary, but he actually turned out to be quite nice. Um, so I, I stayed in... Uh, I would say a lot of the time I was writing this book in 2015, I was, I was looking for a uh, place on Craigslist, and a couple people would not rent to me because I was a woman and they didn't want that liability. So I found a house of all women near Walmart in Williston. So I, I rented a basement room there, and that was kind of fun. That was kind of a unique insight into that is. into the oil field.
1: So I have another question here, but that brings me to a two-part question. First of all, uh, well, before I ask you about the the, uh, House of All Women that you lived in, can you just define, there's a term that you used once before, man camp. Can you define what a man camp is? I've been to that bar, but what is it in terms of a place in North Dakota?
2: Um. It's just a a grouping of trailers uh, uh, that house men, and there's. It it actually can have a bad connotation. That's not quite accurate. A lot of them are very professionally run. They're actually pretty decent. Um, You get free meals. There's there's a kitchen where they cook all three meals for you, Um, and in a lot of the professional ones, they don't allow any alcohol or any women or any pets or weapons. So this idea that, that man camp. What a social- weird
1: list. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so sorry, sorry, yes. Do
2: you want to hear a funny man camp story? Oh,
1: uh, I mean, that's why we're here.
2: Okay. Um, so the biggest Ponzi scheme in North Dakota history was, it was in the man camp industry. Several Englishmen came to town and... Um,
1: Englishmen? Like that? It, like yes. that kind of, yeah.
2: Yes, from the UK. Okay. Um, So one of them who was the the face of this, um, his name was Danny Hogan. Um, I never met him, but I heard a lot about him. Um, So he solicited millions and millions of dollars from people all over the world saying, you can make these insane profits if you invest in my man camps. And uh, so people from Greece, people from Singapore, people from Hong Kong were all throwing in their life savings and thinking they were going to get these huge returns. And in the meantime... This guy was um, actually spending a lot of money at bars. He would order $400 shots. He loved to buy everybody at the bar rounds of drinks. He was a real flamboyant presence, kind of like the, embodying this high roller culture there. And before long, people started to realize they were not getting their money. So the SEC got involved, and um, they had to sue. And so this guy, uh, his whereabouts are still unknown. He's never answered the complaint. Um, and all those man camp trailers were just kind of left uh, abandoned in a field.
1: Wow. Okay. Uh, there was a hand here that I
2: probably put. So a lot of things that came out of this situation
3: seem really negative, And I was just wondering mm-hmm. if anything positive came out of the big oil boom in North Dakota, the way that, say, um, freeze-dried ice cream came from NASA. You know, <laughs> is there anything, you know, were there any technological advances or anything? Whoa, is oops. there anything unique?
1: What what was the novelty food that came out of the Bakken oil field?
2: Uh, The food there is pretty bad. (laughs) I'll I'll leave leave it at that. But, um, yeah, there was a a lot of good that came out of it. Um, uh, The main guy I wrote about, he's still there, and he did quite well for himself, even though he had a lot of ups and downs and challenges and there were a number of people, whether they were investors or workers, if they came in early and kind of saved their money and got out in time, they actually were able to pay off mortgages and save money for retirement. Um, a lot of the locals there, if they had oil royalties, that, that gave them a lot more financial security. And I think, um, you know, it allowed people's kids to move back, it gave it a more sustainable future because the area had been losing a lot of population. So I think there was a lot of good that came with it but some people if they came in a little bit later or they invested later and then they didn't get out in time or their timing was mismatched I mean they definitely did lose money and they lost opportunity. Well uh,
1: and I I know I saw a hand over here but just to push on that point a little bit this is one of the things we were talking about before the show in terms of the sustainability of this Uh, again in the excerpts I've seen from the book and hearing people seem like folks went in and they're like, I'm going to do this for like a few years, make some money, and then get back out. And it also seems to some degree, speaking to the public policy pieces, that there wasn't sort of like a, a model of, oh, North Dakota all of a sudden has all this economic activity. We're going to like take that money and invest it. And actually North Dakota as a state has had some real economic trouble over the last couple of years. And so I don't know. I, I what, what was sort of the was anybody thinking about that long-term sustainability, whether it was for individuals or for the state or the economy as a whole while that was all happening, or was it all like we're all going to play this game as long as we can, and like last man holding the bag is just screwed?
2: Yeah, there were there were definitely some, some big investments. Um, and I, I forgot to mention earlier, one of the cool things about the oil boom was that with the money that came in, it's allowing kids in that area, all the high school graduates can go to community college there for free Um, so there is an emphasis on education Uh, but more broadly um, yeah this was a fundamental tension where the um, especially in Williston they really wanted to build a more permanent uh, community and so um, they were really pushing to get rid of man camps and to really get apartments and restaurants and infrastructure built. But the problem is that they got that built and got a lot of things up and running just as oil prices crashed and a lot of people began to leave. So, I mean, I think they've always been struggling with the timing of that. And some people say that they, they should have been more welcoming or, or uh, of keeping man camps in those temporary areas so that they aren't, having to worry about overbuilding. But I just think with these booms, it's so tricky, and by the time they notice some sort of regulatory problem and try to fix it, it's often too late. I mean, it's just rushing so fast, and then oil prices are down, and they're right. up.
1: Okay, uh, there was a hand over here, but I don't remember who had uh, over there. Uh, yeah, we kind of already asked a question. Oh. Well, do you have another better one? <laughs> That's okay. Uh, you know, you can, line. you can get a sticker there. Here you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, so my question is in more towards, like, the instead of the local level looking at, like, the state as a whole and how the... And I think the North Dakota legislature sets their budget or they need to set their budget every two or, two or three years or something like that. And so I'm just curious, like, how the politics at the state level are playing out um, with prices now rising... Um, and how should the state legislature, you know, should they bank on higher prices? Are they like playing a stock market type thing, or how are they budgeting? I have
2: to admit, I really have not followed that state budgetary process, and it's such a huge story. I was mostly just focused on the ground, but I can tell you, you know, there was definitely a lot of resentment among, um, you know, local officials in those towns where they felt like the state was trying to take their money. T- taking all those oil profits and then not pouring enough help back into their communities. Um, and some communities, especially if they were not Williston and Watford, the main cities felt even more left behind, um, you know, if they were smaller, but but still getting a lot of oil development. And just, just kind of a general comment also, you know, a lot of the population in North Dakota lives on the eastern side, so there's kind of this rivalry or... Western North Dakotans feel like these legislators based on the east side are kind of taking their money but not really helping them enough.
1: Okay, there was one more handbrake. you, Tane, you referenced the uh, environmental issues earlier. It sounds like a lot of your book is about the sociological environment and experience. What, what's it done
2: to the environment in... North Dakota, the, the, the flames come out of people's faucets and all that sort of stuff. You hear from fracking. Uh, is, is are people comfortable with the state of things uh, environmentally? Well, the, there's not really a problem with the water, like there is, like there might be in other places. Um, the big issue was that they. Uh, The area did not have a lot of pipelines when this started, so they were really rushing to get those in. And they were moving really fast. Sometimes there was a lot of shoddy work going on with subcontractors, and so there have been some really major pipeline spills. And fracking and this oil development produces a lot of uh, what they call brine, so it's a a salty byproduct of oil production. And so in my book I write about... um, this spill of 3 million gallons of brine in this one um, person's farmland. And it just destroyed this one family's life because they, when you spill that much brine, it's going to take a decade to clean, at least. I mean, it doesn't just... um, It's not like an oil... At least an oil spill, you can kind of deal with that. With brine, it's much worse. Nothing Hmm. can ever grow on that land again.
1: Because you're literally salting the earth, sort of. Yes, scorching the earth, yes. Um, I mean, to that environmental piece, one of the things you I've heard you talk about is that there's not really an environmental movement, or like there's not mm-hmm. an environmental advocacy in North Dakota the way that at least here in Minnesota we have, and right. so there aren't people pushing on it in that way. And I'm wondering uh, if have you seen that change at all, or is is anybody doing that, I, or is it just sort of like? People are, are just A-OK for the, the most part.
2: I, what I sensed when I was there was that, you know, the, the kind of environmental protest that we saw with Keystone and Dakota Access, and they sort of associate that with these, like, out-of-touch liberals, especially people from the coasts. That's not really how they a lot of people in western North Dakota prefer to call attention to problems. And they actually really... I mean, they're not really against fracking. I mean, they've just been angry at how the state has handled a lot of things. Um,
1: Did that show up at all, though, wh- or whether it's environmental or not? I, um, was there interaction with some of the uh, native tribes that, especially mm-hmm. when it's, you're talking about some of these pipelines, I know a lot of the controversy is that these pipelines would go through native lands or native reservations, um, tribal nations, and so... Uh, did that come up? Was that something that you heard people talking about or debating or fighting about?
2: Yeah, I have a couple of chapters in the book about the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, and that's, um, that produces a lot of the oil in the Bakken, or it's it's in the middle of that oil field. And they're kind of unusual compared to a lot of other tribes where there are there are people who are very unhappy with how it's gone there. They're upset. But at the same time, um, they... Uh, The tribes there are. um, They recent in in recent years, they started a company called Missouri River Resources, where they're going to be drilling and operating their own oil wells. Interesting. Um, After all these outside big oil corporations came in and gobbled up all this, all this land uh, to drill oil, they're going to start to do it themselves. And they hope that if they do it themselves, they can do it in an environmentally sound way and be more responsible and get more of the profits and just kind of control that better, so it's not being. Kind of out of their hands.
1: Heather Meyer, what? cast member from North Dakota. Do you? You had a very good question before the show about, and it just seems like this might be an appropriate moment to ask about uh, land rights. Yes. So, okay. can I toss you this microphone yes. in a dramatic way? I
3: don't even <laughs> need it. Oh.
1: But you need it for the podcast, so everyone can. I hear do. It.
3: Um, I grew up in North Dakota. My family's still there. My mom. This is her favorite subject. Um, so she talks a lot about the people that there are people that farm and own that land, however, that does not mean they own the mineral rights beneath that land and Decades ago, a lot of those mineral rights were sold to speculative buyers in hopes that someday they would pay off, in which they didn 't realize it would pay off so far away so 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 late in the game, so a lot of those buyers uh, may be deceased or they don't even live in the state anymore, so there's this 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 tension, as you as you mentioned, between people who own and live and work the land, not getting any benefits from the oil that's directly beneath the land they own. So I was curious to, did you have any experience around people who feel that way, or maybe
2: people who did also own the mineral rights below their land? Um, I didn't I didn't look at it in in quite that way. I know that's a big controversy, but. Um... In, in my book, I didn't really write about that. Uh, the way I wrote about it was again um, going back to the Indian reservation, where you can literally have all this land beneath your feet, yet you don't control or all this oil beneath the ground that that your town is on, and you, yet you have no control over how it's being developed at all. Um, there's also not just the issues of mineral rights. People um, got a lot of money for for being uh, for allowing. Um, pipeline companies to build pipelines on their land and a lot of that was really kind of a mishmash Um, you know there uh, pipelines were not that efficient because you just keep crossing one person's land to another you have to keep getting easements and permission from each different family and so sometimes you just there's maybe it's not really that coordinated Um, so there's just more um, tension there and, and more disruption to the land than there should be. But, yeah, there's definitely a lot of people who, you know, don't control what's going on around them.
3: Are there any holdouts with the easements across the land, like farmers that are refusing, regardless of the dollar amount, to let that happen?
2: Well, I was there... Um, I did a lot of reporting there in 2015, and that was when the Dakota Access Pipeline landmen were coming around to get easements. So this is before it's hit the national news. But, um, yeah, I talked to some people who, at that point, there was a lot of pipeline fatigue, and they were so angry they would really raise the rates that they would, uh, you know, they would demand more and more money from the pipeline company to see if they would get it. But it sounds like, you know, they could all find their price at some point.
1: So uh, I have one last question for you, which is: um, You did this book. You spent a year approximately mm-hmm. in North Dakota. You, I mean, you are here at the Minneapolis Star Tribune anyway. So you're, uh, in general, you're in flyover country, right? Like yes. as people talk <laughs> about it, and yet you covered these days. You've been in D.C., right? Mm-hmm. Uh, covering Washington for the Star Tribune, yeah. and so I'm wondering, like, uh, what. It is then about some of the national conversation that you feel like, oh, this we're having like the wrong conversation, or we're like, uh, you get something now maybe because you spent time, you know, in this place or with these people uh, that you're like, we're having this big fight in like national media circles, and it's like it's missing the point, or like we're not doing it. Is is there some element of that?
2: Well, one of the interesting things is that in recent years, so much of the media jobs have been concentrated in Washington or New York. And then after Trump was elected, everybody in Washington is talking about how, oh, we need to do more reporting in flyover country. We need to go to middle America. So there's all this parachute journalism now. You fly in and you take a picture of a sad white person on a farm, you know. (laughs) Talking about, about uh, how they were left behind. I read that
1: story. Yeah, yes. um. many
2: stories. <laughs> um, and I just think, I mean, p- people keep talking about the need to 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 get out there, but um, I think that if you don't live there, or if you've never lived there, if you don't have a real bureau there, it's really hard to do good coverage. Um, I can tell you that it took me a couple of years to even understand the Midwest. It took me a long time to understand North Dakota. So I don't think that just having roving correspondents fly in and fly out it is going to be enough. Um, but I think, with, especially with a lot of major papers, they'd rather have a bureau in Hong Kong or you know New Delhi or something than, than in uh, somewhere in the Midwest. I will say it's, that uh,
1: the theater of public policy, for what it's worth, has been to Rugby, North Dakota, but we have not been to Hong Kong. So uh, <laughs> you can, you're welcome. I have uh, a funny
2: story about Rugby.
1: Do you, do you I, can you, yeah, of course I do, yes.
2: <laughs> so during the boom, the um, the prisons in the oil field were so full that they had to take Wait, them Wait, this across is a funny story?
1: Okay, keep going.
2: <laughs> the cops, had to, the sheriffs, they had to spend a lot of their time Driving them across the states, so they would take them to rugby. The, they would they would take all the overflowing prisoners to the prison there. So maybe you should do a comedy. Where show is the, the where is the funny
1: part of this story? This is just like we're <laughs> dumping prisoners in the geographic center of yes. North America. Good. All right. So um, <laughs> I, I it's a tremendous book. We should say uh, the book is for sale here, thanks yes. to uh, Common Good. Is here Mm -hmm. selling the book this evening, and uh, it's a wonderful book. Folks should uh, get a copy because you'll sign it if people buy it tonight, right? And you'll write like a hilarious story in it for them. (laughs) Um, You'll draw a picture of them in the book, uh, a a caricature of whoever buys the book, of what they would look like if they were in the oil fields. Uh, So, with that note, I just signed Maya Rao up for a whole night of work. All right, big round of applause, Maya Rao.
0: Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend a show in person or even work with us, you can find out more information at our website at www.t2p2.net. This activity was made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.